0: Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, how many of you have ever been lied to? Okay, let me rephrase that. How many of you are alive? Okay, go ahead, raise your hand. How many of you have been lied to? Go ahead and keep your hand up because that's basically the same question. To be alive is to be lied to. That's just a natural part of our life. Oh, you have been lied to. In fact, several years ago, there was a researcher. His name was Gerald Jellison. He wrote a book called I'm Sorry and Other Lies That We Believe. And what he discovered was that the average person is lied to up to 200 times a day. Oh, yeah, you have been lied to. We've all been lied to. Sometimes big lies, sometimes small lies, sometimes white lies, but they're lies nevertheless. Sometimes they come from friends, sometimes it's from family members, sometimes it's from strangers, coworkers. How many of you have kids? Okay, then you've been lied to. Okay, because, because that's, what, that's what kids do. Kids, kids lie. We've all been lied to, but how many of us have ever been lied to by the church? Okay, I would be willing to submit that most of us, the majority of us, we probably have been lied to in the church. And one of the biggest lies that I see in the church is this, that if you give your life to Jesus, then you're going to heaven when you die. So you say, what? <laughs> Let me flesh this out a little bit before you stone me as a heretic. Okay. Um, yes, that is true. That when you become a Christian, when you put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus, his substitutionary death on the cross, in your place for your sins, that God's wrath passes over you, you've been saved, and that when you die, you will go to heaven. It's not what they told you. That's the lie. It's what they didn't tell you. It's not what they said. It's what they didn't say. That's where the lie comes from. See, they didn't tell you the full truth. See, they said when you die, you go to heaven, but they didn't tell you about the middle, the part called life. That's the part that they conveniently overlook. That little 4 alert, four-letter word that really changes everything. In life, I would submit to you that life is very important. And some of you, you falsely come to this understanding of, oh, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus and then everything's gonna get better. But what about in the meantime? What about in the middle? What about now? We understand about there, but what about here? what do we do in the middle? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do at that part called life? Some of you were told that, oh, life is hard. Okay, well, you need to become a Christian, then everything's going to be easy, and then you could just go to heaven when you die. And then you became a Christian. You're like, yeah, it didn't seem to get easier. In fact, it seemed to have gotten a little bit worse. You give your life, I thought this was supposed to go a little different. This seems to be very difficult. Well, it's because, well, they didn't tell you the full truth. Some of you, you've been told that if you, you know, if you walk an aisle, if you bow your head, close your eyes, if you raise your hand, you repeat this prayer after me, if you get baptized and you take communion, then you're going to go to heaven. Okay, but there's a little bit more to it than that. It's not what they told you, it's what they didn't tell you. So what I want to do today is I want to tell you what they didn't tell you about following Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to work our way all the way through Verse 13. So we got two verses today we're going to be studying in um, the book of Mark. We're continuing our series, The Simple Gospel, where we're taking two years walking line by line, verse by verse, through this entire book, looking at what it means to follow Jesus. But don't let that word simple fool you. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's better. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. As you see today, following Jesus might very well be the most difficult thing that you ever do in your life. But if you keep following him, then you'll see that it's actually, it's actually kind of simple. So you got your Bibles. We're going to look at four things they didn't tell you about following Jesus. We're talking about his temptation. We've got four things. That there will be a wilderness. There will be a war. There will be wild animals. But there will always be a way. Four things about following Jesus. There will be a wilderness, there will be a war, there will be wild animals, but there will always be a way. Here's how Mark says it in verse 12. The Spirit, who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the third member of the Trinity. We saw Him last week at Jesus' baptism descend on Jesus and reveal His anointing, His power, His purpose for His life. And so the Spirit immediately from His baptism then drives Him, drove Him where? into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted, that's our word, the temptation, it's a a temptation, it's a fight, it's a battle, it's a war, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him, I want you to notice that word right there immediately, this is a very important word, in fact, this um, this is Mark's favorite word, Mark uses this word 42 times throughout his gospel, and it's really unique to Mark. In fact, it's only used 14 other times throughout the entire New Testament. So you get this understanding while you're reading Mark that that he's in a hurry, that he's trying to get you to Jesus as fast as possible. That's why Mark keeps saying immediately, 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 because he wants you to know from the very beginning what you can expect when you follow Jesus. And we see it last week that at Jesus' baptism, immediately the heavens opened, the Spirit descended. Here we see that the Spirit immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness. We'll see that Jesus, he goes... Immediately to the synagogue. And then immediately there's a man with a demon. And then immediately he calls his disciples. And then immediately they drop their nets. And then immediately he's at another person's house. And then immediately he heals a woman. You get this understanding that Mark doesn't hold anything back. Mark's not sugarcoating anything. Mark's not placating religion. Mark wants you to know what to expect when you follow Jesus. And he's telling you from the very beginning. He's saying, listen to me. There will be a wilderness. How many of you, that's where you're at? How many of you, that's where you feel? How many of you ever experienced this? That you find yourself in a wilderness, that life is hard, life is hell. That you're tired, you're stressed, you're exhausted, you're emotionally drained, you are depleted. You don't know if you can keep going. You don't even know where you're at because, well, you find yourself in the wilderness. Mark says, I told you so. It was coming. I told you in the very beginning. In fact, if you didn't like it or you didn't read it, I'm going to tell you twice. There will be a wilderness if you follow Jesus. Mark wants to let you know from the very beginning, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. There will be a wilderness. And what Mark does here is actually very genius. Mark is a brilliant storyteller. He's a great author, and he's a writer. And if you're not super familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you might actually miss out on what what Mark is doing by connecting these two terms of temptation and wilderness. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, we see the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. And God, he created everything that it is in this world. All of our experiences. All of our existence, that all comes from him. So God, he, he made the heavens and the earth, and he made everything that is in it. He said, it is good. So he made the plants and the animals. He made the trees. He made the mountains, the valleys, the ocean. He made the moon. He made the stars. He made the sky. God made everything, and he said, it is good. And then he made mankind. He made Adam and Eve our first parents, man and woman. And he made them both in his image and his likeness. And he gave them dominion. And he placed them in this beautiful garden. Says you can do anything that you want. You can, you can eat of anything that you want. Minus one thing. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Well, that went Good. For about three chapters. And that's not as far as we made it. Because Adam and Eve, they, they sinned. And their sin was in rebellion against God's Word. He said, you can eat of anything, not the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then the serpent, we're going to talk about him in a little bit. The serpent comes and he tempts them. And he says, are you sure that's really what God said? And he tempts them because that's exactly what it is. It's a temptation. And so he lies and they believe in the lie and then they sin and they fell and they rebelled and they separated themselves from God. And then ever since, every single person who has been born has been born separated from God. That you and I, we are separated. We are born with a sin nature. We are totally depraved. We are bent in towards our self and sin and we are given to our own selfishness and in our temptations. And what we see is that God's grace Great garden has now become a wilderness. That God's creation has now become a wilderness. That it's dry, that it's barren, it's desolate, that there is devastation. That's why when you look around, that's what you see. That sin and death has entered in the world. That's why we see war. That's why we see injustice. That's why we see racism. That's why we see prejudice. That's why we see suffering and pain and hurts and hardships and hatred. That's why we see those things is because it is a Wilderness that we find ourselves in. We also see it in Moses, in the book of Exodus. Moses, he finds himself in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. See, God's people, they were under oppression, they were slaves under a man named. Pharaoh, who who, who oppressed them, who held them, and would not let them go. But God heard the cries of his people. He raised up a prophet named Moses, and he went and he said, let my people go. There was a deliverance that happened through mighty miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land, and then immediately they find themselves in a wilderness. For 40 years, they're in that wilderness, We also see it with the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah, he's preaching against the prophets of Baal, Jezebel, and all the false gods and idols that are in the land. And as he is up there, he calls down fire from heaven. Fire from heaven. And immediately after the victory, he finds himself in a wilderness for 40 days. Depressed, anxious, exhausted, isolated, alone, tired that he is doubting God's sovereignty he's doubting God's plan he's doubting God's will he's doubting God himself because he finds himself in a wilderness this is a theme that happens over and over again throughout the scriptures we see it with Adam in the wilderness we see it with Moses in the wilderness we see it with Elijah in the wilderness and then we see it with Jesus that Jesus goes from that Jesus goes from the water into the wilderness. That last week, he was in the water. This week, he finds himself in the middle of a wilderness. Immediately, there will be a wilderness. We all go through wilderness seasons in our life. Each one is a little bit different, and what we walk through is all going to be a little bit different, but in some regards, they're basically the same. That some of our wildernesses, they're relational. Now, maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you're married and it's not going the way that you want it to. Maybe you're divorced. You find yourself in a wilderness relationally. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe they're being difficult. Maybe it's dysfunctional. Maybe your children are being rebellious. You find yourself in a wilderness when it comes relationally. Some of you, you find yourself in a wilderness Maybe physically that you're sick, that you're hurting, that you're injured, that you're ill, that you have cancer or that you have chronic pain or you have an undiagnosed illness and they don't really know why, but nevertheless, you still find yourself physically in the wilderness. Some people your wilderness is mentally or emotionally. That you are depressed, that you are anxious, that maybe you have bipolar, or maybe you find yourself that you are just done, depleted, that you have no more emotional capacity to be able to even care or have a conversation with someone. And all you want to do all day is lay in bed, pull the covers over your head, and wait until the world ends, because you are in a wilderness. Some of us, our wildernesses could be financially that money's tight, bills are due, taxes are due, you're overworked, underworked, overdrafted. You don't know what to do because, well, you're financially in a wilderness and some of us, our wilderness is spiritual. That you can, you will have a spiritual wilderness. You'll get to times where you read your Bible and it doesn't make any sense. There'll be times that you go to community group and you can't connect, you can't open up, you don't share. There's going to be times that you come to church and you worship and you don't feel the presence of God. And you think, well, where is he? What is he doing? Why isn't he here? Right? Does God love me? Does God still care? Where is he at? What's he doing? And you find yourself spiritually, and you're in the middle of a, your middle wilderness. How many of you have ever been here? How many of you ever feel this? How many of you ever experienced this? It's okay. It's okay. In fact, it actually might be, might be a good thing. You think, how can this be a good thing? Pastor, how can you say that what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, what I'm walking through, what I'm going through, the wilderness that I am in, how could you possibly say that this is a good thing because God always works in the wilderness? That there are some things that you can only learn when you are walking through the wilderness. God always works. He does his greatest work. He does his deepest work. He does his most profound work when God has you in the wilderness. See, it's easy to follow Jesus in baptism. It's something else when you trust to follow Jesus when all hell is breaking loose. It's easy to follow Jesus in the water. It's something else to follow Jesus when you're in the middle of a wilderness. It's easy to follow Jesus when everybody's cheering. It's something else to follow Jesus when there is suffering. It's easy to follow Jesus when everything is going right. But what do you do? How do you live? How do you choose to follow Him when everything is going wrong? When you find yourself in a wilderness, that's where God does His greatest work. There will be a wilderness. And so you need to follow Jesus. Well, the second thing he tells us is that there's going to be a war. Here's here's how he says this in verse 13. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. You need to know this, that you have a real enemy and that his name is Satan and he hates you. And I know this isn't very popular to talk about today. That we live in a day and age to where there's science and reasoning and rationale and all of our problems can be described by prescribing a pill. But not all of your problems are emotional. Not all of your problems are relational. Not all of your problems are physical or financial. But there is a real spiritual aspect to all of our lives. And you and I, we find ourselves in the middle of a war. How many of you think, life just feels like a freaking war? That's because life is a freaking war. We will be, we are, there will be a war that you and I, we are in the middle of a war that has been waged since the beginning and it's an assault and it's attack on the kingdom of God. And one of the ways your enemy wants to attack the kingdom of God is by coming after the children of God. Oh friends, there will be a war. And some of you, you have been Christians for a long time. That you have been following Jesus and you have forgotten that you're in a war. That you have gone on vacation, you've abandoned your battle station and you forgot that you were in a war. You got your flip-flops on when God has called you to wear your boots. That you're drinking margaritas on the beach when God has called you to storm the beach because this is war. And you have forgot. And you're sitting there comfortable and Calloused in your own life, and you're wondering why you keep getting hit and why you keep getting shot, it's because you forgot that you are in a war. And you like to sing songs about how much Jesus loves you and listen to sermons about how much Jesus loves you, but you forgot that Satan hates you and you are in a war. It's time for you to put your boots on. Some of you, you're new Christians, you're new to faith. You've been following Jesus for a month, three months, maybe a year. You just had your baptism. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in the middle of a battle. Nobody told you following Jesus was going to be a war. So you go from baptism to battle, and you're wondering what's happening. Let me tell you this. I can guarantee you that Satan was at Jesus' baptism too. Last week, we saw Jesus be baptized. The Spirit descended. The Father says, with you, I am well-pleased. Satan was in the background watching, waiting, saying, we'll see. Because as soon as you come up at that water, there will be a war. Satan was at your baptism too. And while we were cheering for you, you got your nice death, burial, resurrection shirt on. We had a party. We put it on Facebook. Everybody was applauding you. Satan was right there watching you. As soon as she gets up out of the water, you could trust me, there will be a war. We'll see how she walks in the water. How is she going to walk in the war? You think you were baptized? No, you were called for battle. There will be a war. So when you find yourself in this war, you need to keep your senses. You need to get your head on straight. You need to get in the war. There's a couple things you need to know about a war. First thing you need to know is you need to know your enemy. Who are you fighting? Who are you facing? His name is Satan. And he has legions of demons. Jesus was being tempted by Satan. His temptation, it wasn't imaginative. It wasn't cognitive. It wasn't figurative. It was very real. It was supernatural. It was very powerful. And it was very real. You have an enemy and he is real. I know people will try to tell you he's not, but he is. So who are we fighting? Who are we facing? His name is Satan. That Satan, he hates us. And there's this big lie today that says that there are two equal and opposite cosmic forces, that there's good and there's evil, there's light and there's darkness, there's yin and there's yang and there's God and there's Satan, and they're duking it out in this big cosmic battle. That's a lie. There are not two equal forces. Satan is not God. Satan is not equal to God. Satan, in fact, was created by God that Satan was the chief head angel in heaven, that God made him. And some people say that his original job was to be the choir director, worship leader, that he was to radiate the glory of God throughout all of the kingdom. He was the most beautiful, the most splendid of all of God's creations. And because of this, he became arrogant, puffed up, and proud. And he led a rebellion and insurrection against the kingdom of God, where he was defeated by the Lord, that him and one-third of his angels were cast down from heaven to earth, where they bring the battle against people like you and me still to this day. Satan is very powerful. Satan is very real. But you need to know that Satan is not God. That he's not all-knowing. He is very smart. He has been watching human civilization, seeing how all this works for a very long time. He knows your next move. He's very smart. Satan also, he is not all-powerful. He is limited. He is a created being. He is... Limited, But he's also not omnipresent. That means he can't be everywhere all of the time. And so most likely, while Jesus was being tempted by Satan himself, you and I, we're probably being tempted by the legions of demons that he calls to give instructions and directions so they can defeat us, they can distract us, and they can deceive us. And that's the way that he works. He works through this deception, that it's lies, See, the word Satan means the adversary or the one who opposes because that's the way that he works. Anytime that God gives you an opportunity, Satan's going to come and he's going to bring you opposition because that's the way that he works. And the way that he does this is through his lies. That the native language of Satan is lie. That's all that he does is lie. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. He lied to Adam and Eve. Surely God didn't say that. Last week, Jesus being baptized, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He comes to him in the wilderness and says, are you sure you're the son of God? If you were, then you would do this. He comes to us through lies. And friends, listen to me. Lies need not be true to be powerful. They just need to be believed. Lies need not be true to be powerful. They just need to be believed. Are you sure that the Bible's real? When you look around, it doesn't seem like it fits in. It's a little culturally relevant, I think. Are you sure that's really a sin? How could something that feels so good be wrong? Are you sure that you're really saved? Are you sure that the people here really love you because you walked in the door, nobody shook your hand, you missed last week, nobody called you? Are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you sure that you're saved? After you did what last week? Are you, are you sure? Are you sure that you really got baptized and all you didn't do is just get wet? Are you sure that it worked? Are you sure that God loves you? I know last week they said you're a son and you're a daughter and that He's pleased with you. But where is He at now? You're in the wilderness. Where is He at now? You're in a war, right? If He loved you, then why do you find yourself in the middle of this war? Where's God at? What's God doing? God must not be real. Or if He is, He doesn't care about you. Lies need not be true to be powerful. They just need to be believed. And friends, when you start hearing that word you, you can bet that's demonic accusation. You are unworthy. You are unloved. You are worthless. You are pathetic. You are ugly. You are stupid. No one wants you here. You should just leave. You should just quit. You should just die. You should just kill yourself. It's demonic. We need to know our enemy. We need to know the way he works, the way he speaks, the way he thinks. We need to know our enemy, because we're in a war. And some of you, this is all very new to you. And you're coming into faith, you're joining the church, and you're thinking, all of a sudden, I have all these problems. Right? I didn't have these problems until I started following Jesus, and now, now I have all these problems. It must not be working. Anytime I open up my Bible, everything goes wrong. Anytime I start praying. It all goes wrong. I come to church and I worship and then I have all these problems. It must not be working. No, friends, it is working. You're in a war. Nobody told you when you signed up to follow Jesus that you were going to be in a war. And you're wondering why you're having all these problems. That's because before you were a Christian, you weren't a threat. Before you were a Christian, you were actually a hostage. You were a prisoner of war. Satan had you right where he wanted you and you weren't a threat to him and he could keep you in that prison and he could torment you all day long and you did not even know it. But the moment you became a Christian, Jesus Christ, He stormed the gates of hell. He brought the keys of life. He set you free. And now you've traded sides and you find yourself on the front line of a war and there is a battle and that's where you're at today. So you need to know your enemy. The second thing is, you need to know your weakness. Now I would never say anything that would even give you a hint that our Lord Jesus was anything less than perfect. That he had no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. That there was no faults, no flaws. There was no failures in him. But I would be willing to bet that at this moment, Jesus was probably feeling a little weak. Matthew tells us that he is in the wilderness for how long? Luke, or Mark rather, how long? 40 days. In the wilderness, in the sun, in the heat, sucking his energy, his life source out of him, very hot in the wilderness, but at night drops down to freezing. 40 days in that wilderness. I think Jesus was probably a little weak. See, Matthew's gospel also tells us that for these 40 days, Jesus was, he was fasting. He means no, no food, no nourishment, no sustenance for 40 days. Some of you, it's hard just to go 40 minutes without food. Could you imagine going 40 days Without food, think he's a little tired. In a wilderness, in a war, no food, fasting 40 days. You think he's probably feeling a little weak. When you're feeling weak, you're vulnerable for an attack. You need to know your weakness. Our weaknesses are the same as Jesus' weakness in this moment. He's hungry, he's isolated, and he's tired. That's when you're vulnerable for attack. When you're hungry, when you're when when you're emotionally drained. When you have no more energy, when you're depleted, when your life source is running low, that you are hungry. This could be maybe you have a final project due at college, it's a big deadline. Maybe you have a deadline for work. Maybe you're working overtime. Maybe there's just something happening in your life and you've just given all of yourself, and now you find yourself hungry. You aren't empty, you're low. You're vulnerable for an attack. When you're isolated, when you're alone. This is whenever a kid goes and stays at a friend's house for the weekend. This could be whenever a guy goes out of town for a business trip, finds himself in a bar with a hotel room. There's a girl at a bar, unlimited internet access, pay for cable TV. Your wife's back home. What do you do? This is a woman who's at work and there's a cute guy across the way and every day he comes in and flirts with her so she takes her ring off and puts it in the drawer. There's isolation. This could be when a college student goes to the dorms and they have a little freedom. they got a little anonymity. There's no isolation. There's no community. And then they live however they want, whenever they want because now they have new friends. They get to reinvent themselves. They get to recreate themselves. They're no longer surrounded by the prayers of mom and dad. They don't have a church that loves them and cares for them. They have no Christian community speaking life into them. They're in isolation. Isolation is the battleground for your temptation. When you retreat, when you withdraw, you're setting yourself up for temptation. If Satan can get you alone, he's got you where he wants you. And then sometimes it just, because you're tired. In life, yeah, sometimes we get tired. Now, sometimes it's your own fault you're tired. Like, you just keep shooting yourself in the foot. And you're like, why am I tired? It's because you stayed up till four o'clock watching Netflix, playing video games, and scrolling Facebook on your phone. Yeah, of course you're tired. You slept till noon, right? You're gonna be tired, and that's your own fault. See, Satan knows that if he can't deceive you, he can distract you. And if he keeps you distracted you're not going to have any wherewithal to be able to fight back. Technology can be a temptation and temptation could just be a distraction. If he has you distracted, he doesn't have to worry about you fighting. You're too weak. So you need to know your weakness and sometimes it's just you're tired. It could be your fault. It could be a season of life you're in. Right, maybe you're pregnant. Yeah, you're going to be tired. Maybe you just had a baby you're going to be tired. Maybe it's teething. You're going to be tired. Maybe it's work. You're overworked. You're working overtime. You have to drive an hour back and forth each way. Yeah, you're going to be tired. Maybe a hurricane comes through, destroys your house, and all your family has to go live with someone else. So trust me, you are going to be tired. Sometimes there's just seasons of life and you find yourself in this place that you're feeling weak. Now, I love you. I care for you. I pray for you guys all the time. And I... I really do love you. And you know that I know when you're being attacked by the enemy? I know because I I feel it. And I don't know how to articulate this or to explain this, but there is a personal spiritual connection that I feel to those who call redemption home. That I pray for you throughout the week. And when you go through things, I feel it. When you are hurting, I hurt. When you suffer, I suffer. When you're being tempted, I the Lord brings you to my mind. Not always. Not everyone all the time. But sometimes at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I have a name of a person, a face. I might have a dream or a situation that you're walking through. And boom, all of a sudden I wake up and I'll say your name and I'll start praying for you. I can feel when you're going through things. So in life, if you're ever like, why does Byron keep texting me? Or why does he keep calling me? Or how come he walks over and puts his hand on my shoulder at church? It's because I know that you're walking through something right now. It's just my way of saying, I know and I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Because I see Satan attacking my friends and my family, the people who call church home. It makes me angry. But I also know because many of you, you tell me, every week you come in, I'm tired. (sighs) Work, kids, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm sick. So I know because you tell me. And I know that when you're tired, you're set up for an attack. And I also know, well, because I just see it. I see it in people over and over again. I just, I just see it happening in your lives. I can tell because when you're hungry, I can tell when you're isolated, when you begin to retreat, when you begin to pull away, when you were you know, four weeks a month at attending service and now you're one week every other month. I, I see that happening. When you quit serving, when you quit giving, when you quit your community group, when you just kind of just slowly but surely drift away and without a call, without a shot in the arm, all of a sudden people begin to disappear because you're in isolation and Satan's attacking you. I see it. I know it. How many of you, this is where you're at? Good. It's good that you can admit that because when you know your weakness, it's time for you to get to work. So number three, you need to know your weapons. There is a war, but you are not without your weapons. That God has given you everything you need to be victorious for your battle. There will be a war, but you are not without your weapons. You don't have to fail. You can stand up and you can fight because God has given you weapons. And what's amazing to me is that so many times when Christians come under attack, the first thing they do is they drop their weapons. If you put this book down, you're dead. If you stop praying, you're done. If you're so busy that you no longer have time for spiritual disciplines, you're not going to have the energy to be able to defend yourself. So many Christians, they use their weapons as a last resort and not as a first response. God has given you weapons. You need to learn how to use them. Here we see that Jesus overcomes his temptation through Satan in a couple of different ways. Matthew's gospel tells us it's through prayer. It's through Bible reading. And it's through practicing the spiritual disciplines of silent solitude and his meditation. Jesus is doing war using his weapons in the middle of his temptations. You need to learn how to do the same. That God has given you weapons. He wants you to use them. All you need to do is just use what God has already given you. You have your weapons. You find yourself in a war. You need to be reading your Bible. Right? Studying, reading, knowing, growing in this Word. Because think about it, if God's Word is true, and everything that comes from Satan's mouth is a lie, which one are you going to believe? Because if you don't know this one, all you know is this one, it's going to be very difficult. You need to get God's word in your heart. You need to be praying. You need to be spending time with the Lord through prayer. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him. God, help! I'm hungry. God, help! I'm isolated. God, help! I am tired. I am. I am in a wilderness. I am in a war. <laughs> Lord, please help! I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Please, Lord, help. You need to pray. And I don't care how you do it, as long as you do it. If you're like, I can't pray for longer than five minutes, then read for four. Pray for four. If you're like, I can't read my Bible for more than a chapter, well, then read a section, read a verse, do something. Whatever you do, don't do nothing. Don't put this book down. Don't put your head down. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. Keep moving. Keep working. Keep persevering. Fighting because you are in a war, but you are not done. God has given you weapons, and sometimes the greatest weapon is the person sitting next to you. The greatest weapon is the person sitting next to you. If you are a member of a church, if you are connected, if you are involved in a church that God has called you to be a part of an outpost of the kingdom of God in this city, and we are in the trenches together. And if all you do is hop around from place to place and church to church, and you're not rooted with your boots on, and you're not connected, you're going to draw enemy fire. If you're going from place to place, you're going to get sniped by a demon and you're going to expose the line for everybody else. You need to get in those trenches. We need to be in those trenches together because when you're getting shot, we can shoot back. When you are hurt, we can pray for healing. When you're getting hit, then we can, we can hit back. And when you have no faith or when your faith is weak, then you can borrow my faith. Oh, you're in the middle of the wilderness. I've been there. I have a map. We can walk through this together. Oh, you're in a war. You got shot. I've been shot two times. I've been shot three times. Here's my scars. I know how this goes. We are in this together. And sometimes the greatest weapon you have is the person sitting next to you. You need to know your weapons. Then number four, you need to know your King. Here's our King. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the King. And what I love so much about our King Jesus is that he doesn't sit on the sidelines, but he goes to the front lines. That we don't serve a king who's in some other country somewhere being tended to by slaves and servants. But he becomes a servant to be tempted by the serpent. And that Jesus brings the battle to his own battleground. The temptation of Jesus. He's not being defensive. He's being offensive. He's driven straight into Satan to show us that defeat is possible. And you are not a victim to your temptations because Jesus has overcome them. That Jesus has overcome Satan showing us that it is possible that he can be, he will be, that he has been defeated. Jesus is our king. And when you know you're king, you know why we fight. When you know you're king, you know how to fight when you know you're king, you know that the war has already been won and as a Christian you don't fight for victory, but rather you fight from victory because Jesus has been victorious. That Jesus goes to the cross. He laid the death blow to Satan and that hell and the grave and all those things have been defeated and that through his death, burial, resurrection it's been given to us. And so as Christians, we walk in victory because Jesus has already won. The war is over. The war has been One, because of Jesus, you need to know your king. But there is something else Mark says. And it's very interesting. Mark says, when you follow Jesus, there's going to be a wilderness. He says, and you can count that there will be a war. There's something else that they didn't tell you there's going to be wild animals. What does Mark mean by this word, Jesus was with the wild animals? That's a little interesting because Matthew never mentions it. Luke never mentions it. John, he doesn't even talk about the temptations at all. And then Mark here, he says, there will be wild animals. And well, what, is, what does that mean? We already saw in week one that the audience in which Mark is writing to is the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is experiencing extreme persecution. That they are being captured, they are being killed because of their faith. And they're under a wicked, godless tyrant of an emperor. His name was Nero. And, and Nero, he hated the Christians. And he wanted to destroy the church. And so what they would do when they capture him, they would douse them in blood, tie raw meat on them, throw them in the middle of a coliseum for sport, and let animals, dogs, and lions... Wild animals, tear them to pieces. That's what it meant to follow Jesus in their church. That you will be torn to wild, by wild animals. And so Mark is writing to the church in Rome and letting them know that, hey, when you're with the wild animals, Jesus was with you. Amen. That whatever you're walking through, Jesus was with you. Jesus knows that. Jesus understands that because he was with you. He was with the wild animals. But what does this mean, wild animals? What you need to know is that sometimes your temptation is supernatural. Sometimes it's just natural. Sometimes your temptation is is extraordinary. Sometimes it's very ordinary. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's very natural. Sometimes the greatest temptations just come from living in the world that we live in. See, friends, there's two ways you can live. Mark's talking about wild animals. What he means is the world. The world is wild animals. There's two ways you can live. You can live according to the world or you can live according to this word. You can live according to the kingdom, or you can live according to the culture. But you can't live according to both. You're going to have to make a choice. See, we are to be in the world, but we're not to be of it. See, we're to be in the culture, Oh, but we are to bring and to live in the kingdom. You can't have both. you are going to have to make a decision you either have the kingdom or you have the culture you either have the word or you have wild animals when he says wild animals he's talking about the world this is the climate this is the culture this is the spirit of the age this is the spirit of the air this is just the world that we live in when you turn on the television that's wild animals When you're watching a movie, it's not just Hollywood, it's not just entertainment, they are selling you a worldview. They are telling you what to think when you turn on the internet, when you get on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and you see everyone else, the highlight reels of their life where they're out having fun and you are having quiet time at 6.30 in the morning and you're wondering why you can't be like them, that's because that's wild animals. When you when you turn on and you you scroll through and when you look, everyone's trying to tell you something. From marketing to media to advertisers, they're trying to sell you something. Buy this, say this, do this, act this way, hang out with these people, dress this way, and then you can finally be the person that you always truly, deeply wanted to be. That if you act like this, then you're accepted by us. If you believe like this, if you think like this, then you can be one of us. All of those things are wild animals. The way the culture, the way the kingdom works are antithetical to one another. I remember when I was a new Christian, I experienced this for the first time. I, I grew up in the church, I knew all the right things to do, but I didn't like doing the right things, and so I didn't do them. And God saved me at the age of 20, He, he, he regenerated my heart. I became a Christian, I dropped the anger and the bitterness and the religion and I began to follow Jesus. And I got into a church. It was a good church. I got into a community group with some good people. And the more I began to follow Jesus, the more convinced I became of Scripture, the more convicted I became of my sin. It's funny how that works. The more convinced I became of Scripture, the more convicted I became of my sin. Namely, that Ashley and I were having sex before we were married. And I came up with all sorts of reasons and justifications as to why it was acceptable for us to you having sex? And I thought, well, you know, I mean, we already had sex once or 10 times, so we might as well keep doing it. Oh, well, you know, well, I did it and God forgave me. And so I'm just going to do it this time. And then God's going to forgive me again. And I can just keep doing it because, well, God's just very forgiving. And I was like, well, you know, I know we've had sex already, but I love her. I plan on marrying her. And so that's basically the same thing, right? And I thought, well, you know, I mean, I have these friends. They're living with their girlfriends. At least I'm not living with my girlfriend. Don't talk about me. You need to go talk about them, right? I'm better than those people. And I didn't see my sin for what it was. I didn't see it as sin. I had justification. I had, realization, I, had I had every other reason in my mind, but there was none that were, I could find in this work. And so I became convicted of this. And mind you, I, I'm like a year into this Jesus thing. Right, I'm twenty-one years old talking about having sex with my girlfriends. Really? So then I go and I talk with a couple of buddies of mine, and they were like, Hey, yeah, that's in there. Like, ah, what do we do? And they're like, Well, we should just you should just stop. Stop. I'm like, yeah. So through some accountability, through a conversation, through some friends who still to this day pray for me. Me and Ashley, we repented and we decided, well, we're going to live a holy life. And so for three years, we devoted ourselves to chastity before marriage and we waited until our wedding night. And so that was the decision that we made. But that went well for about three months. And so I'm sitting after work and I'm hanging out with some of my friends after work, young guys. And the conversation moves to sex because young guys—that's what they talk about. And they begin to make jokes, and they see I'm not laughing, and they're like, "Why don't you making any jokes?" And I'm like, "Because it's not funny to laugh at women." And I don't find it funny, and I'm not going to laugh. And they're like, "Oh, well, it's just sex. You have sex with Ashley." It's like I don't have sex with Ashley. It looked like it, like I had like three heads or something. Like, what do you mean you don't have sex with Ashley? I was like, "I don't have—I don't sleep with her, right?" And, well, why don't you do that? I'm like, "Well, because I'm a Christian." And we've given our life to live according to holiness. You know, this is what the Bible says. We believe that this leads to the most joy. And so we're going to honor this decision. And so that's just the way they live. They're like, I couldn't be with somebody and not have sex with them. How do you know you want to marry someone if you don't have sex with them? Like, look, if that's the reason you're marrying someone, you're in a lot of trouble. See, the reason I married Ashley is because she loves the Lord and she makes me a better man. That's what a Christian looks for in a spouse. And so, yeah, they, they still didn't get it. They're like, that, that's insane, right? How could you be with somebody you can't even see? Because the way the world thinks and the way the Word thinks is different. The way the culture works and the way the kingdom works, they're, they're different. Oh, there will be wild animals. You're going to see this. You're going to feel this. Right? You're not going to get a bonus points for following Jesus. Right? Nobody's going to be like, yay, you got the Jesus flag. Woohoo! like we might cheer for you at your baptism but out in the real world you're going to be criticized ostracized you will be persecuted because there will be wild animals oh you're a member of a church that sounds like organized religion oh you believe in the bible like a virgin had a baby who was god and coming back to judge the living and the dead woohoo you're you're a little crazy Oh, you mean you believe in hell? The conscious, eternal torment? That sounds very cruel. All that stuff about sex and sexuality and gender and abortion, all those things, really? Come on, man. You need to drop those beliefs. You need to get with the program. It's 2018. Are you living under a rock from the 1950s? You need to. You can't believe in those things. Oh, you mean believe that Jesus is the only way? That seems very intolerant, There will be wild animals. And if you're not following Jesus, they will tear you to pieces. And right now, some of you are probably a little angry with me. Probably feeling a little upset. Maybe a little bummed and and, and, and depressed. Maybe you're upset. All for good reasons. Because you come here every week and you're like, Byron, why do you keep doing this to us? Right, we come here, it's Sunday, it's our fun day, it's sunshiny outside, I have brunch at Luke's, I just wanted to come in, I want to hear a nice word, pat me on the back, tell me everything's going to be okay, I brought a friend and they have to listen to you yell for an hour on a two verses about sin and Satan and temptation, and why do you do this to us every single week? Because my job as your pastor is to prepare you. My job is not to lie to you. My job is not to trick you. My job is not to deceive you. That's Satan's job. And if he can get this pulpit, he will get that view. That's right. My job is to prepare you for what to expect. Oh, you can trust me. There will be a wilderness. There will be a war. There will be wild animals, but there will always be a way. Amen. Because Mark, he tells us that while Jesus was in that wilderness, in that war with those wild animals, the angels were ministering to him. There will always be a way. If you're in the wilderness, there will be a way. If you are in the war, there will be a way. If you are with the wild animals, there will be a way because with God there is always a way. The same Spirit that led Jesus to the wilderness is the same Spirit that will lead you through that wilderness. The same Jesus that was being tempted by Satan is the same Jesus who is with you in the middle of your temptation. The same God that sent the angels to minister to Jesus is the same God who still sends His angels to minister to us when we need it the most because with God there is always a way if you are hungry there is a way if you are isolated there is a way if you are tired there is a way with God there is always a way now his ways are not always our ways but with God there is always a way nobody goes to the wilderness on vacation but it is where God has you Nobody nobody goes to the war on purpose, but it is where God has called you. Nobody plans for wild animals, but it is where God has called you. There will always be a way. If I could encourage you with that, that if you keep following after Him, God has not cheated you. Satan has not defeated you. You are not abandoned. You are not alone with God. There is always a way. Maybe not a way around the wilderness, but if you keep following Him, there's a way through it. What I love about Mark's account is that Jesus' temptation lasted how long? 40 days. Sometimes you just got to get through it. Sometimes you just got to keep moving. Sometimes you just got to keep... Persevering. Sometimes there's just seasons in life and you just get through it. Jesus persevered. And His temptation was 40 days. But it shows us what type of Jesus we serve. See, our our Jesus, He walks through what we go through. He goes through it before us to make a way. See, our our Jesus, right, He was fully man. That He lived His life just like us. The author of Hebrews says that He endured all temptation so He can sympathize with us in our weakness, but He was without sin. Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are tempted, and through His temptation, Jesus had to trust in God the same way we have to trust in God. Jesus had to depend on God the same way we have to depend on God. Jesus had to follow Him even when all hell broke loose, The same way that we have to follow Him when all hell breaks loose. And what we see is Jesus knows that hell breaks loose right before our breakthrough. And so we see what kind of Jesus we serve. One who is with us. So today we've been talking a lot about lies and temptation. So what I want to do as we close is I want to talk to you about the truth of temptation. Okay, very briefly, let me give you five temptation truths these are very important. When you go home, they're going to be on our connect page. You can get connected into that. And at your community group this week, I want you to discuss which one is really the most helpful for you. What was most beneficial? And you can encourage one another in your times of temptations. But I want to share with you five temptation truths. Okay. The first is this temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, but He was without sin. Jesus never sinned. He lived that perfect life. And so that means that temptation is not sin. Some of you feel that your temptations are sin. It's not. Right? To be tempted is not to give in to sin. That you have identified with your temptation. You feel like this is just who you are. This is just how it's going to be. This is just the way that it always is. And so you feel so tempted, and so you see yourself as a sinner. Like, all I am is this lowly wretch. I'm a worm. I'm so pitiful. I'm so worthless. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, please help me. I'm being tempted. Temptation is not a sin. So understand that. Be like, oh, I'm being tempted. Oh, wait. That's not a sin. The second thing is this. Temptation, it never leaves. Right here in Mark's account, it says, and no mention of Satan leaving. In Matthew's, Satan, Satan departs. In, in Luke's, Satan departs for an opportune time. In Mark's gospel, Satan never leaves. That's because in Mark's mind, the temptation never does either. See, when you read through Mark's gospel, what you'll notice is, oh, it's going to be very hard to find one section or chapter, find a page without Satan on it, without a demon somewhere, without someone in sin or temptation or a wilderness or a war. They're on every single page because it never leaves. That's what you can expect when you follow Jesus. You can be following for three months, boom, all of a sudden temptation. You can follow Jesus for three years, boom, all of a sudden temptation. You can be like, I'm a super mature Christian 30 years later, boom, there will be a temptation because it never leaves. So you need to be on alert. You need to be on guard. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be following after Jesus. The, the third is this. Um, temptation is actually an opportunity. Okay, It's an opportunity. You have to see it like this. Okay, I have an opportunity right now. I have an opportunity to give in to my sin or have an opportunity to grow in holiness. See, you, you have an opportunity. You can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give in to my sin. No, no, no. I'm going to grow in my holiness. But in that moment, you have to see it and you have a choice. See, you, you know you have a choice in regards to your sin. Like, you're not a slave to it. It doesn't own you. It doesn't master you. It doesn't control you. You have been set free through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You're not a slave. You have a choice. But when you go back to it, you make yourself a slave again. See, you, you have an opportunity now. I can grow in holiness or I can give in to my temptation. But it is an opportunity. Number four, temptation is proof. You know, it's proof of What? It's proof of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. You say, how is temptation proof that the Holy Spirit is working my life? Because you have temptation. See, before you were a Christian, you didn't have temptation. You just did whatever you wanted. right? It's called Tuesday. You're like, hey, what day is it? It's Tuesday. Oh, it's temptation? Nope, that's a club over off of college. Nope, okay, yeah, temptation. We'll edit that out. Temptation. You just did whatever you wanted whenever you wanted. Because that's just the way you lived your life. But now that you become a Christian, you have temptation. How many new Christians are like, yeah, this is really making sense right now. Okay, that's because you have new desires. That's what the Spirit does. You're like, I have conflicted desires because now you have two desires. You have your old desires. You have your new desires. You have your old life. You have your new life. The Holy Spirit has brought new life. And so temptation is proof that the Spirit is working in you. When you no longer feel that temptation, you need to be scared. Because your heart has become so seared, so callous, so hard towards the leading of the Spirit, you don't feel any temptation on it. So it's proof that the Spirit is working. And let me say this what you feed grows. If you feed your old desires, guess what's going to grow? Your old desires. If you feed your new desires, guess what grows? Those new desires grow. So what you feed is what grows. If you feed temptation, temptation is going to keep growing. But if you feed the Holy Spirit and righteousness, guess what keeps growing? It's proof. And then number five, lastly, temptation is not defeat. Okay, repeat after me. Temptation is not defeat. Okay, it didn't sound like you believe it. Temptation is not defeat. Temptation is not defeat. See, some of you, You feel like it is. That all you do is you walk around totally defeated and discouraged in your life that you're filled with shame and isolation and and grief, and you feel as if you are defeated, like all you are is the worst decision, the worst day, and this is how you see yourself, that you are defeated. That is not true, that you are not defeated. In fact, Satan has been defeated, that Jesus goes to the cross in your place, that he lived the perfect life that you could never live, that he dies the painful death, that he receives in himself the penalty and the punishment for your sin and through the cross Jesus Christ our great warrior servant king defeated Satan sin hell death and the grave and temptation and because of Jesus you are victorious and you have not been defeated so don't quit Don't give up. Don't go home. Don't give in. Keep moving. Keep working. Keep persevering. Keep fighting. There is a wilderness. Friends, there is a war. There is wild animals. But with God, there will always be a way. And now you know the truth about following Jesus. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.